Welcome. You're listening to the I Can't Believe I Get Paid to Do This podcast from BBC Good Food. Do you dream in food? Are you starting your first job, trying to change your path, writing your CV right now, or simply curious as to how the food on your plate gets there? We're focusing on the careers side of the food industry in this new series. I'm your host, Miriam Nice, and in this podcast, I'm going to be uncovering what it takes to have some of the most enviable jobs in the wonderful world of food. In this episode, we're going to be diving into the world of product development, a place where imagination, creativity and trend predictions are turned into business success. My guest this week is paid to invent food. Her name is April Preston, Director of Product Development for Marks & Spencer, with over 30 years of experience in retail, manufacturing and the restaurant industry. April, warm welcome to the podcast. To kick off, I just want to know a little bit more about you first before we discuss the role. Yeah. Um, If we can start at the beginning uh what did you want to be when you grew up um what's your earliest memory of that well I knew from the moment I knew about food that I wanted to work in food but I didn't know what options were available so I grew up in a I had an idyllic childhood um down in Devon I grew up on a farm we grew everything we had a dairy herd so we had made our own clotted cream we had milk straight from the tank that wasn't um pasteurized at all we grew our own vegetables we killed our own chickens um and really access to food great food at that age I knew that's what I wanted to do I was passionate about it I was really curious and I'd kind of at that stage understanding where it came from really sort of piqued my interest I had parents that were passionate about food my dad particularly was very meticulous um, with his food and I everything he used to prepare was very meticulously done even if he had a poached egg on toast it was a certain way that he did it there was always a lot of ceremony around it which I don't think he was ever aware of, but I used to observe and I I found it fascinating and I think I learned a lot from him. Mm -hmm. Um, But then when I, I I wasn't really aware of what careers there were in food. I knew about restaurants. That's all I knew about really. Um, So I did a business studies degree um, and I did that at Bournemouth, had a great time there and I it was business studies, but every single one of the case studies we did were orientated towards hotels and restaurants. And it was a four-year course with a year out in the third year where you went to get some work experience. And that year changed my life. I I went to London and I spent six months um, at an amazing hotel owned by a lady called Anushka Hempel, who was a Bond girl previously. And she had such exquisite taste. She was a huge personality. And we, at that time, and we're going back to Ooh, very early 90s now. Um, we used to have a lot of the stars staying there. And of course, coming from a small village in Devon, this was like, oh my God, Robert De Niro's just walked wow. through the door. <laughs> so, I mean, I was wowed by the whole London scene and the environment. But again, the most exciting thing was the food. And I used to hang out in the kitchens with the chef. And I can remember um, one morning going down and I said, oh, is that guacamole? I've read about that. And he said, yeah, take a spoonful. I took a whole dessert spoonful and it was wasabi. And oh, I've never... No. <laughs> I didn't even know what wasabi was back in those. Honestly, I don't think I could speak for the rest of the day. I was down in water. But I did hang around in the kitchen with them a lot. I learned a lot. Um, and then the second six months, I really wanted to get involved in the restaurant world. So I went to work at Bebendum. Mm. And Bebendum at that time was run by Simon Hopkinson. He was the chef. And 
I just, I couldn't believe that such amazing food could be created. And it wasn't actually fussy. I mean, anyone who went to Bebendum back in the 90s, it wasn't fussy food. It was just absolutely brilliantly and exquisitely um, executed and brilliant ingredients and just things that I would never have thought of. You know, again, I've been used to, lasagna was sort of quite exotic that I'd grown up with. But um, I can remember particularly Ufon Moret tasting that for the first time and thinking, a poached egg and red wine sauce. I mean, that's really bizarre. But it was, you know, I've got those memories now. And in that kitchen at that time were some of the greatest chefs that we've got in London today, but they were the beginning of their careers. So people like Bruce Poole, Phil Howard, um, Henry Harris, Matt Harris, David Burke that went on to open Pond Tour. I mean, literally, I, ha- I had a leaving card after six months and they all signed the menu. And now I think most of them are either running brilliant restaurants and have got Michelin stars, but in those days they were learning the trade. And Honestly, we, we did split shifts and I spent all my time hanging out in the kitchen. I was front of house, you see, mm. but they, they constantly found me in the kitchen quizzing the chefs about things. So then I'd got the bug. I wanted to learn more. I mean, up until this stage, my knowledge of food had been built through what we created down in Devon and what we grew and cooked, but recipe books. And I used to read recipe books like fiction all through my teenage years um, and that's what I used to do. I'd go to bed, I'd take a book, and I wouldn't just look at the pictures. I'd read every single recipe, I'd read the foreword, I'd read all the, everything. I mean, I was just, I couldn't get enough knowledge into my brain. And then I started, well, I started cooking from the age of about seven because we lived on a farm, and it was only my mum and dad that ran the farm. It was a small farm. We didn't have anybody that worked with us. So myself and my sister quite often had to cook the tea because they were out milking the cows. And um, I can remember we made my mum always remembers we made brilliant Victoria sandwiches when we were about nine ten years old we were cooking roast dinner and again I was experimenting I can remember my first cookery book and the things I cooked from it um and I can remember uh, spiced sardines and there was a lovely little dish um sort of before trompe l'oeil was a trend in in cooking it was a chocolate swiss roll that you had a slice and then you put some whipped cream and then half a peach half on the top so it looked like a fried egg on toast. <laughs> Love that. So anyway, that's that's a long time back. But I used to read a lot of cookery books. But then when I got into the restaurant world, I thought, right, this is what I want to do. I want to learn about food. I want to taste great food. And the great thing about Babendum at that time is because we worked split shifts, the couple of hours that you had free in the afternoon wasn't enough time to go home. So they used to train us. So we learned how to fillet a fish, what wines go with what desserts, how to cut a cheese board properly, you know, all of those um, things that actually have stayed stayed with me for life. And it was all about excellence. It was about doing simple things really, really well. And I think, and it was all about taste. You know, the restaurants I've worked in, they weren't style over substance. You know, the food tasted incredible. And I've worked with some incredible chefs and been so lucky along the way. So I then went and did my final year at university, couldn't wait to come back to London, um, went to open up another uh, Terence Conran restaurant, Pond de la Tour, down at Tower Bridge, um, and set that up. And then I got headhunted for um, a new restaurant that was opening in the city, um, set up by a guy called Stephen Bull. Again, great chef. He was at the forefront of modern British cooking. And this was a time when... Previously, if you wanted great food in the UK, you had to go to a very formal environment and, you know, it's all starch tablecloths. Then 
a revolution started and Stephen was at the forefront of that. It was places like Kensington Place where you could eat great food, but it wasn't formal. There were no tablecloths. You know, your bread went straight onto the table. The service was really friendly. And this, again, really cemented one of my ethos that you don't have to make it fussy or formal. I like great taste, but really, really informally. So I went to Stephen Ball. I opened that up and then... (laughs) I can remember so clearly the next step. So I, um, I'd employed a waiter um, who I quite fancied and I started seeing him and I said, right, this, this can't work. I can't see you and you work for me. You're going to have to leave. So I basically sacked him. He went across the road to run St. John restaurant. So John Spateri, he was his maitre d' and they opened up St. John. Um, we lived above St. John restaurant for a while and I ran the restaurant op- opposite and we had a wonderful time. But one day I met Mark, who's now my husband, he was my boyfriend at the time, and we went to a Korean restaurant at the bottom of Holloway Road. But anyway, Mark was meeting me at this restaurant. He was running late. He came running in. Of course, there was no, we didn't have um, phones in those days. There was no internet. And he said, oh, he said, I was just on the tube and I saw the Evening Standard and there was a job in there that's absolutely perfect for you. It says, you know, you don't need any qualifications necessary, degrees useful, you don't need any specific experience, you just have to have passion for food. And I said, fantastic. I said, where is it? It sounds right up my street. And um, <laughs> he said, oh, I left it on the train. And of course, it was about half past nine and you couldn't just look something up on the internet. So we had to go to every single news agent, knock on the door and say, have you got a copy of the Evening Standard left? And um, we did eventually find it. And it was a a job advert for a product developer at Marks & Spencer. And I'd never even heard of a product developer. I didn't know what they were. Um, I had heard about buying. I think a friend of my parents had gone into buying at Sainsbury's or somewhere like that. And I thought, that sounds quite interesting. Um, but no, this product development job sounded fantastic. It basically you had to have a degree, a passion for food, a curiosity, a thirst for knowledge, and um, you know, really know about food, but you didn't need anything else other than that. So I rang up the next morning and I said, Oh, I'd like to apply for the job, please. And uh they said, Oh, well, you're the 3747th person to call. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it was so open that they'd had so many calls and it was a screening company. And uh, basically, I went through a very rigorous recruitment um, process. I can remember this was 95. And uh, one of the things I had to do for recruitment was come up with some uh, product ranges to sell in store. And one of the ranges I suggested was uh, some jars of sort of French classics, cassoulet, confit de canard, etc., and the lady that was interviewing me, I could remember her so clearly. She was formidable. Judith Sweetland, she was called, and she was my boss for many years. I learned lots from her. But she said, well, surely we don't want to, you know, everybody's interested in health nowadays. They're not going to want duck fat. And I said, well, funnily, you should say that. But my second proposal is sushi. And I created a little range of sushi. And again, it was a bit early for sushi at that time, to be honest. But, you know, I'd, I'd been looking around and thinking what what will satisfy that sort of healthy snacking um, craze that was sort of in the mid 90s so anyway I got the job that was back in 95 and um I spent well until 2013 I was at Marks and Spencer's um I did a short stint as a product developer start off with and my first job was Chinese and Indian ready meals which 
has stayed with me for my whole life. I often say if I go into mastermind, my specialist subject would be spices because I've made it a lifelong study to really understand. I got to work with some great chefs around the world. I got stages in kitchens. So I worked with Cyrus Toddywaller in his kitchen when before he was famous back at Cafe Spice Namaste. Um, worked with Atul Kocha, um, worked with some great Chinese chefs, went to India, went to Pakistan, went to Hong Kong, Singapore. Wow. And really, I mean, that's what product development is about, and particularly at MS, is really getting a deep knowledge of whatever category you're in, in charge of, I suppose. So I did that until 2013. And then I thought, right, I need to broaden my experience. I knew I wanted to stay in food. Um, and I went to work for a big food manufacturing company because when we talk a bit more about product development, the sort of creating the dish at the beginning is almost the easiest part. Mm. It's actually how do you translate that into a product that will sell. So I wanted to understand more about the manufacturing process. So I went to a big um, manufacturer called Two Sisters Food Groups, privately owned, absolutely loved it, spent three years there, worked for an incredible entrepreneur, Ranjit Singh, um, learned so much from him. And that's one of my biggest learnings on my career is work for people that can teach you something different, that's different from you. But I spent three years there and I thought, mm, I'm ready for something new. I'd kind of decided by this stage that I was uh, not as business as usual person. I wanted to drive change and transformation. And I set up my own business for all of about three weeks. And it was a consultancy business. And I met... Um, Alex Dower, who was um, working at Harrods, and he'd been brought in to transform the food halls and the restaurants at Harrods. And through his vision and our vision working together, we got a £30 million budget signed off to completely revamp the food halls at Harrods. Now, this was my dream job of all time. And somebody said to me at the time, is it like being given the best train set you've ever had and I was like yes it is <laughs> because what it did what what Harrods did at that time first of all it was a big transformation program in a beautiful historic building um beautiful surroundings you know trying to deliver the best of the best of the best in terms of food but my role there, because it was one shop rather than a thousand at, at Marks and Spencer's I had multiple teams working for me so I had 150 chefs which was like my treat. I've always loved working with chefs because you learn so much from them. I had some of the best chefs ever there. The pastry team, honestly, there is nobody in the world that delivers the volume of exquisite pastry that they do. It's headed up by Marcus Ball with Alistair Burt there. And honestly, they do amazing work. And I don't know how many people know, but a huge amount of the food, the fresh food particularly, is produced at Harrods by chefs. There's seven floors below um, Harrods, below the ground level, and the kitchens are two floors below. And down there, there's a whole brigade of amazing chefs still cooking that food fresh every single day. But it is like a little, you know, it's like when I've been into food manufacturing, it was like a mini um, production centre, which I loved. I also um, was involved in the restaurants. There's 25 restaurants in Harrods. I managed the MPD, the product development team, the technical team, the hygiene team. So lots and lots to do with the food there. And it kind of brought all the bits of my career together in one place. So, I mean, honestly, it was such a dream job. Wow. But I knew that there was a finite period that I was going to be really stretched and happy there because once we'd revamped all the rooms, um, there's four 
food halls in in Harrods and we did one at a time and we put in fresh coffee roasting and we put in a scratch bakery um, set up by a brilliant baker Lance um, and we did an amazing fresh haul with a butchery and a fish can I mean it was it was wonderful but once we got to the end of the rooms I was thinking you know I'm not going to enjoy being a business as usual it's not going to I'm getting near to the end of my career I want to do something that stretches me and um Coincidentally, probably about six months before I was ready to leave, um, Stuart Machin came to speak to me. And Stuart Machin is the CEO of um, a big part, joint CEO of Marks and Spencer. And um, he, we talked about me going back to Marks and Spencer as the director of product development, which I am now. And in my, I, I suppose I, I really struggled with it because I didn't want. I felt like I would be going back, but when I met Stuart, he really painted an incredible picture of the transformation Marks and Spencers needed to go through in the next couple of years to become more relevant, um, more relevant to families. Um, and it felt it felt like a transformation the way he talked about it. And then I went back into the building and you could literally feel it was a different business than I'd left. It's like, <laughs> it's like when you, um, you sort of, there's a drama on TV, they go back in time and it's in black and white and it comes to the future and it's all, current present day and its colour and there was just a vibrancy and an energy and a pace that hadn't been there when I'd left and I thought yeah this is the job for me and um, I've been back at Marks and Spencer's for two and a half years I think now I've never ever regretted that move back Stuart's been outstanding as a boss you know I've learned so much from him and as I said as I've gone through my career it's about who I work for and what I can learn from from them and we're just doing some incredible things at the moment. I feel we're on a roll. Um, we've really got our finger on the pulse of what our customers want. Um, lockdown actually has been a fabulous year for us in terms of food. I know it's been a really, really difficult time for lots of people and lots of my team. But in terms of our food business, I think lots of people have discovered Marks & Spencer because it's been their local store. Um, people have really wanted to celebrate events and we excel during events. So there has been, you know, some silver linings to a very difficult year. Um, and, you know, it's really, really stretched, stretched my team, but um, it's been great. And that brings us bang up to date. Amazing. So, that took longer than I expected. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. I mean, you said you, how much you love the job at Harrods. Would you say that your job now is your dream, your dream job? It's my dream job for now. I would never say, because I don't know what's around the corner. You never yeah. know, do you? <laughs> um, at the moment, it's my dream job. I um, I absolutely love it. I, I'm in. I'm in more a leadership role. Obviously, I'm I'm director at MS now, and it's slightly different from being a hands-on product developer. But I go back to the floor a lot, to the chagrin of my team. <laughs> and I, I work very closely. No, they. I think they um, welcome you know, the experience and um, advice and support. But I still am quite hands-on. Um, mm. So I didn't want to get to a leadership position where you didn't get to do any of the doing because that's the bit I've always really enjoyed. And, you know, my my role really is about spotting opportunities, business opportunities. Um, and to do that, you have to be constantly in a stage of research. I mean, my research and development is my life there's no separation between home and work in that sense I'm always everything I do is researching food in some way whether it's cooking the children's tea 
or doing the shopping. You know, I mean, even if I'm doing the shopping, I'll do a comparison. I'll say, right, what makes really great value for money? You know, and that's just my weekly shop. And I'll do the same with carrots and apples. And <laughs> so it's just, it's, I, you can never stop learning. And I know you work in the world of food and I, I know that you're exactly the same. It's, it's like wine. No matter how much you learn, there's always more to learn. And that's what keeps me going. And really understanding customers as well and what they want to eat. Yeah. Um, because you can't just come up with a nice recipe or a nice product, and uh, sorry, a nice recipe or a nice idea and expect it to make a great product. You have to really understand what customers want and you have to solve a problem for them. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think two of the biggest um, misunderstandings of, of product development is the difficult bits coming up with the idea and um, a good idea or a good recipe makes a great product. And really, that isn't the case at all. You know, this I think it's the Edison um, quote that innovation is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. I mean, that is true of product development. Coming up with the idea is the easy bit. Making sure that there's a need for it or you're solving a customer problem you, you can't just develop what you don't sit there and think, oh, I fancy developing a banana custard pudding. <laughs> you know, there's got to be, it's got to somehow fit with people's lives. Yeah. And then getting it to, from an idea that is solving a problem to a product you can sell on the counter, that's the 99% perspiration. I think that's the bit that people don't understand. Um, there is so much work that goes into it. And I'm going to cover some of that, I think, in the masterclass later. Yeah, I think there's a that seems to be sort of quite a kinship with um, product development and kind of recipe development. You, we don't just write a recipe and and for something we'd like the sound of. I mean, sometimes, no. um, but mostly it's, it's like <laughs> you, you want to solve a problem. You you want to really understand who's going to make it. How busy are they? You know, what have they got? You know, to hand that kind of thing. It's it's it, there's, it's all about the context. How can you minimize the story. their washing up? Yeah, you know? yeah. I, and then it has to be foolproof. And um, yes. you know, I was talking the testing to begins. someone in your team the other day. <laughs> testing, 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 testing. I mean the amount of testing and um you know what we do is slightly different but there are a lot of similarities as well and it can sometimes be quite monotonous you know when you're on your 47th version of cranberry sauce it's quite astringent (laughs) you know it's it's not all um you know delicious people think oh god you get paid to eat and I said yeah I do and you know 90% of the time that is wonderful yeah but 10% of the time you know you're eating your fifth chicken tikka of the day at nine o'clock in the morning it's um <laughs> yeah we just done the uh the christmas uh taste test so you have like a, oh, a yes. plate of Mid-spun. like um blind tasting of, of lots of of different products and yeah <laughs> our christmas pudding is really difficult to um do the I taste test on christmas puddings are, but i think christmas cake is the hardest one for me oh, usually because yes. you, you're I, I always i i think everyone does it differently but i always taste all of the cakes and then go back and taste the marzipan and the icing. Because if I yeah. taste them both, then the sugar just knocks my palate out for the next one. So, yeah. yeah. And then but taste then. the whole thing together. Do you do that yeah. as well? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. And then no, you're like, very oh, sim- I'm quite full now. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. Um, okay, talking about, your, you mentioned your your sort of uh, supermarket order. Um, bit of a nosy one. What was the last thing that you ate? <laughs> Ooh, well, I'll tell you what it was, because it was, I hadn't eaten yet today. I had a coffee on the I've just driven up from Devon so I had a coffee on the way um so last night I um you'll see it on my insta it was a whole roasted cauliflower with um with chickpeas uh onions diced tomato and like a turmeric hummus 
Um, we're trying to eat less meat, like lots of people. I've got two teenage daughters. They want to eat more vegetables. And honestly, I work silly hours. So people always say, well, you say that took 20 minutes. That would take me two hours. But preparation, planning, you know, and I wanted to see if it worked. You know, how long do I cook this cauliflower and what do I need to do with it? But literally, it took me a couple of minutes. I made the turmeric hummus at the weekend, put that in a dish, sprinkled on some chickpeas, tomatoes and onions and roast, put a cauliflower in the oven and forgot about it. Roasted it, passed it on the top. Lovely. But um, yes, that was the last thing. Oh, I don't waste any calories. I've got this terrible ethos that I call it value for calorie. So I can't, because I eat for a living, I do have a bit of a weight problem. I can't just mindlessly or eat things that I'm not going to learn something from. So I would never sit there and eat chocolate and crisps, unless I was researching chocolate or crisps. But I wouldn't mindlessly sit there and do that. I have to learn something from every calorie I consume. So Am I going to learn something about taste or recipe or health or whatever? It's quite um, soul destroying for my family sometimes. They're, <laughs> they're like a, a bunch of um, well, I, t- I test things on them basically, and I I do sit them down occasionally with a, a blank piece of paper and I get them to write their comments before they discuss it. <laughs> so, but they're the harshest critic, your family, and they will always be very honest with you and and I'm lucky all of my family my husband and my three children are not only very knowledgeable about food but they've got great taste so um they're they're good good guinea pigs for me yeah and testing it in the home is as well really yeah really important because that's where people are going to be eating it and cooking it so yeah yeah I think that's really good I was going to ask you whether your um if it was a typical nine to five but it sounds sort of 24 yeah. 7 <laughs> I mean it honestly is and I think you know I know that this program is about um luckiest job or you know I've got the luckiest job in the world and honestly I don't think you could do my job if you didn't have the passion for food it's just completely seamless work home I mean I I do I have just had a couple of weeks staycation and I um made a commitment to myself that I would separate the kind of email meeting bit from the home bit so you know try and put a cap on that rather than it going into the late into the evening but the the learning the curiosity you know if I'm doing some chores around the house I'll have a food podcast on you know whatever I'm cooking but my son once said to me four years ago he said I don't want the same meal twice mum and I said what this week and he said no never and actually (laughs) I think there's about two dishes I've cooked cooked more than once but every single and I I you know in all my waking time I cycle a lot and I um, swim and I I'm always thinking about right what can I create what's the next meal Um, so I never switch off but the sort of physical being in the office, being a team, it is very, very long hours. I mean, I'm not going to to lie. Um, Good. Yeah. I did. Um, I did an interview a while back for uh, I think it was International Women's Day, and I can remember saying to the lady, lovely lady that was interviewing me, I said, "Oh, you know, I'm so lucky. I'm like a footballer. I get paid to do what my real passion is." And she said. Well, actually, from what you've just said, you're not lucky. You've actually worked really, really, really hard. And I have, I mean, I can't, I don't think ever in my career I've had a proper lunch break where you go and do something else. I don't think um, I've ever worked less than a nine, 10 hour day, you know, but it's because I love it. It doesn't feel like that. And you did mention as well your family and kind of how they respond to it. When you got that first job as a product developer, what was their reaction? What was your family's reaction? What did they think? 
And your friends as well. My mum's my mum's gonna hate me for this, but I can remember it so clearly because it cut me to the quick. I said to my mum, Oh, I've got an interview with Marks and Spencer. And I know she didn't mean it like this, but she said, What are you doing that for? You'll never get that. <laughs> I have had a lifetime of trying to prove people wrong, but I mean they were over the moon. They've been really, really proud and um yeah, because everybody knows Marks and Spencer. It's you know, it's a brand that everybody feels very passionately about. You know, there's a lot of love and emotion around the brand, and you know, it's it's a lovely brand to work for. Everybody's got an opinion on it. Everybody's got a favorite product. You know, everyone I meet's like, "Wow, I bought this the other day, and this was my thoughts." And you know, people really, really want to share and talk about it. So, in that sense, it's a great brand, and and my family have been very, very proud that you know I've got to got to this level. Yeah, I had this very similar thing. I think my dad was like, well, um, yes, my friends have heard of that. <laughs> like all the other jobs <laughs> yes. that I'd done, like, you know, like, oh, yes, well, they've heard of BBC Good Food. <laughs> so nice, so nice. Um, okay, so for anyone who doesn't know, can you talk through a bit more about what um, a kind of typical day for a product developer would be like? I wouldn't say there's a typical day. But there are typical things that all product developers do. So I'll, I'll, I'll go through it in that way. So we've talked a lot about research. Um, a huge amount of what product developers do is researching to try and find those problems that need solving. So that could be researching the market, could be researching the customer, it could be researching food, you know, um, setting benchmarks, etc., they would um, look at what's going on out in the marketplace. So they might, you know, people call it being paid to shop, but it's actually really hard work, <laughs> you know, going out there, seeing what's going on in the world, keeping, you know, actively keeping your eyes and ears open to um, what everyone else is doing and really thinking about how can we stay ahead because Marks and Spencers, obviously, we like to lead. Um, there would then potentially be, there is quite a lot of admin, which I don't think people expect. So every, particularly with a big retailer, I mean, it's very different if you're working for um, a very small brand or a startup, you wouldn't have all the admin that we have, but we were quite a big complex business and we're creating products that go to a thousand shops. So there's a lot of diligence in there in terms of making sure that it's expensive to get a product to market and it's time consuming. So writing great briefs, to your chefs or your suppliers or to your packaging experts is really important. Um, and then recording everything as you go along, um, you know, because there's multiple, multiple stakeholders that need to be aware of, of different attributes of the product. I won't bore you with all the admin, but there is a lot of admin. Certainly if my team was sitting here, they would say there's too much admin. <laughs> um, so there's admin, there's a lot of tasting and there's different styles of tasting. So we talked earlier about uh, tasting, taste testing Christmas cakes. You know, we would do a lot of benchmarking. So eating our products versus equivalents, maybe um, from different retailers or specialist producers or whatever, just to see how we're sitting, value for money. Um, there are tastings for once you've um, sort of signed off your concept you take it to the feasibility stage. That's when you start to scale up into large production. Um, and there's lots of testing, life testing. You know, how, how long can the shelf life be? Does that taste and quality last? And how long does it last for? And interestingly, for Marks & Spencers, we don't go on um, how long it's safe for. We go on how long it still tastes great. So that's the life that we would give the customer. Um, 
cooking, you know, cooking instructions, storage instructions, travel tests, you know, testing all of those things, um, working with suppliers and chefs on the creative side, um, setting benchmarks, creating recipes, um, quite a lot of presentations. <laughs> you have to um, really engage quite a few people and get them on side. And I always say product developers are pioneers. Um, you know, they, they've got the vision of what they want to do. And quite often you're working with people that don't want to change, don't want to do anything different, you know, happy as they are. So there's taking people on that journey with you. So that's about presenting it to them, t- tasting it with them. Um, so there's quite a lot of work around that as well. Um, so it is very, very varied. And there are some lovely bits, you know, part of the research is we do get to eat out, but you don't get to choose whatever you like, you know, and you don't get to drink alcohol. You have to choose something that's relevant to the project you're working on and you have to write extensive notes. Um, you know, we do go out and, and look and travel, uh, although less over the last year, but mm. and we've had to do a lot of desk-based research. But, you know, what's going on out in the world? And actually, I'm sure you find this as well, if you're in a creative profession, actually getting out and being immersed in food. Sometimes you're not really looking at anything specific, but it just sort of gets your brain going and um, you can really come up with some some great ideas then. Definitely. And how far, you must get asked this a lot, but sort of how far in advance, you sort of 18 months or something ahead of when the product would launch, is that roughly... I think this is the most asked question, actually. I thought it might be. Um, (laughs) There isn't a typical amount of time. So if you're talking about something like Christmas, then you would be starting 18 months before. And we're now working on Christmas 2022. Because, you know, if you're creating a Christmas pudding and you want 12 months maturity, and we might even start two years before, because you've got to produce it 12 months before you're going to sell it. Of course. Um, So that's the extreme. The other extreme is... I think the fastest product I ever got to market was um, a Vindaloo ready meal. And I don't know, for any listeners that remember the, I can't remember if it's Euros of the World Cup, but the Vindaloo song that yeah. came out. Yeah. Um, suddenly I sort of thought, right, let's do a, a big bucket of Vindaloo and rice. And we got it out in eight days. Wow. Um, <laughs> but that that's extreme. I would say most, most things take six to 10 months, but then it really depends, you know, a biscuit of, uh, biscuit tin you might be getting the tin from you know another part of the world and you have to bring that in whereas a sandwich you know you could probably create that quite quickly and get it onto the counter but the time consuming bit is the testing bit you know we can't put something out there that isn't legal safe we know it's going to taste great for a period of time we know that people are going to see it is great value for money and be great quality um and the packaging does take a while to develop on some products more than others. And particularly now, because we're putting so much more emphasis on trying to make sure that our packaging is sustainable and, um, you know, better for the planet. So there's more work involved in that. And that tends to take the time. Yeah. The coming up with the ideas and the, the the sort of what problems are we trying to solve is fairly constant. We're just constantly doing that but when you've come up with something that you want to launch it's um that's when the clock starts ticking amazing no I was just thinking because if you're working quite far in advance like if the person you're sort of trying to get on board someone you're trying to get the approval of is thinking about what they want now and you're two years in advance it must be difficult to sort of say hey in the future we're gonna love this trust me like yeah. that must be a pretty amazing kind of pitching yeah. process 
And it's been one of the biggest changes in recent years, actually, because everything has accelerated with social media. Yes. Um, you know, and I know that you're particularly interested in trends and it's something that we look at a lot and trying to identify what's the difference between a trend and a fad. Yes. Because actually we don't want to invest huge amounts of time resource in a fad because like say if it takes us six months to get it on the counter and then suddenly it's not nobody's interested anymore it's not great yeah. for us so that I, I I tell you if I had one wish it would be that I had a crystal ball and I could really <laughs> see <laughs> but it, it's it's a tough old game actually predicting what's going to be successful and what isn't and data takes you so far but actually the best product developers I know have a brilliant gut feel and a brilliant finger on the pulse of what customers want and um, what's coming down the tracks. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. And is there, is there anything that they need specifically in terms of qualifications to be a product developer? Is there sort of one route into it? You said you needed no. a degree for yours, but is there... Yeah. I mean, I think a degree helps, although, you know, certainly in my team, I wouldn't say that was a prerequisite. Okay. I do think, I mean, I often describe it as a, you need somebody that's an Alan Sugar with a, an encyclopedic knowledge of food. Um, because it really is, you have to be a great business person. You have to, you know, I, I did a business studies degree and I would definitely encourage people that want to go into product development to do that. Some people take the... Um, food technology way in but I think certainly for me a business brain and developing and broadening your food knowledge are the two things that I would say would really set you in good stead and a broad experience I mean I, I think one of the reasons that I have done well is because I've done lots of different things with food so I understand manufacturing I understand the kitchen I understand restaurants I you know and and the best product developers I know have come from different and diverse backgrounds some from publishing actually and, and journalism again because you're immersed in food all the time you're curious you're learning you have to know how food works because if you don't know how it works then you can't correct it when it moves from because you, you start off with a plate of food in the kitchen or one sample or a prototype you then have to make it work to go to a thousand shops and some of the volumes that we're talking about are enormous and that is a very specific skill. And you cannot do that if you don't know how things work. So, for example, I mean, if you even think about if you're, you know, you've got a recipe that's for two people and you want to batch it up for 10, you don't just times it by five because, you know, the, the amount of water that reduces off it, if you're bubbling it away, so all of those things and all of those technical skills, spices work in an odd way as you start to batch them up. So you just have to understand the processes, how things work, you need to understand ingredients, you need to know recipes, you need to be curious, and you need to be really, really, really determined and dogmatic and never give in. Now, I've got a friend that, I, I, one of my oldest friends, one of the best product developers in the world, and she said, you know, I feel like every day I'm going in and getting into the front row of a scrum and pushing, 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 because it is like that. You have to... Um, you know, any creative role, I think you have a vision and you can see things that other people can't see. And it's, you have to be really determined because you get knockbacks all the time. You, oh, the numbers, oh, that won't work. Oh, that won't work. Oh, it's a 50 million pound business. I always said that would work. You know, <laughs> There's nothing more satisfying than that, yes. I'll tell you. <laughs> but you, you do hit a lot of resistance and a lot of challenge. Yeah. 
Um, we are almost out of time, but would you mind? Le- I've had such a great time talking to you. Um, would you mind leaving us with um, just a few things that you would suggest anyone who really is keen on getting into um, product development would mm. need to sort of read or listen to or look at? Mm. Well, I think the first, I mean, I'm sure it's come across as we've talked, but the first thing is a really great knowledge of food, but a current knowledge of food. And, you know, through my career, this has become so much easier because of social media now, um, because of podcasts, you know, Instagram, I probably spend an hour a day on there, really just, you can spot trends, you can see what people are talking about, but you can also see what style of a substance. So that's a really, really fertile hunting ground. Of course, food magazines, because, you know, I'm not just saying this because we're talking, but honestly, I mean, the the food magazines, including Good Food, that I read every single month meticulously, because that gives me a really good insight into what people are thinking about, what they're cooking. Um, There's a couple of radio shows I never miss. Um, uh, The Radio 4 Food Programme, which is fabulous because it's got such deep knowledge in there and, you know, brilliant if you're curious. And I also listen to Farming Today whenever I can. And I think it's partly, it takes me back to my childhood, but actually it really gets to grips with some of the challenges in the food industry at the beginning of the supply chain. So that one for me is a really, really important thing. And, you know, it's not all glamour and Christmas puddings. You know, there is... A poultry industry to understand there's you know what's going on with lorry drivers what's going on with um you know how are we picking our vegetables what, what are some of the challenges we're facing so I find that very useful um I definitely I've talked about you know really engaging with people and inspiring them and selling your ideas there's a great book I'm using it to prop up my laptop actually um which I read it's called your perfect presentation it's actually about presenting products but it's about there's a it's re- it's got lots of really helpful tips in terms of how do you engage people and take them on a journey and tell a story. And I've always, I read it first a couple of years ago and it, it was fabulous. Um, the one, the one that's a bit of a wild card, I was watching the Brits um, this year, 2021, and Taylor Swift did her um, acceptance speech. And honestly, once you get past the thank yous, and she did some lovely thank yous, including the NHS, the second part of the speech, she talks about what it's like to pioneer and to lead. And honestly, I mean, I'm not even going to try and recreate it. You have to go online and watch it, because if you want to go into product development, listen to what Taylor Swift says, because she puts it so perfectly um, and you need what she says so I'm going to leave that one with you to to follow up if you haven't seen it already fantastic thank you thank you so much there's so much there and it's been such a treat to talk to you um and uh, next time I'll be finding out about another dream job in food but in the meantime April is going to be recording a bonus episode with us and you'll learn some essential trade secrets directly from her so look out for that thank you April thank you so much Oh, thank you. It's been uh, been great talking about it. Like I say, don't get to very often. <laughs> and for more information, visit bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcasts. See you next time. You've been listening to the I Can't Believe I Get Paid to Do This podcast from BBC Good Food, hosted by me, Miriam Nice. Join me next time as I uncover another dream job in food and drink. <laughs>